Hey there, Dragon Babies. Before we get started this week, we have a quick plea for you to let us know what you think. You can do this one of a few ways. You can leave us a review on iTunes and then the public and the world at large will know your thoughts. Or for those who are not so inclined, you can get in touch on our website, dragonbabiespodcast.com. Send us a DM on Twitter at dragonbabiespod or on Instagram at dragonbabiespodcast. We're happy to open up our repertoire and cover some other YA fantasy books that we might not be remembering, might not be thinking of, might be your favorite books, um, but we need to hear from you to be able to do that. So get in touch, let us know, and happy reading. Welcome to Dragon Babies. Welcome. I'm Grace. And I'm Madeline. And this week, we are discussing Diana Wynne Jones's Witch Week. Ooh. I swapped up the title and the author. How do you feel? Oh, I give it a solid 8.5 okay. out of you 10. Don't have to rate. <laughs> <laughs> Save your ratings for later. This book was released in 1982. It is the third of the books about the Crestomancy. Um, which is a title, a position that's held by an enchanter. Um, there are seven books about him total. And this one is unique because he's not one of the main characters. Um, he shows up as an assistant at some point in the book. Like um, near the end. Yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of as a deus ex machina, but not really because he still has to do a ton of work and they've got to muddle through the mess of their world to come to a solution. But... I really like the way that this is kind of a departure from the main Crestomancy storyline, um, which I don't know if you know anything about. No. <laughs> Ellen's starting to make some like nervous faces on the other side of the room. What, um, wait, I've, what does deus ex machina mean? In Latin, it means God in the, out of the machine? Yeah, I don't remember exactly what the translation is but no, but like what it, what does I it know mean? that's what I'm about oh, to okay. tell you because like that's not the important part it means that something impossible happens at the very end that saves the day and ties up all the loose ends in a way that that is doesn't make any sense so it's, it's like it's the, an act um, of God the MacGuffin I don't know what that is uh, uh, the MacGuffin is like uh the ring of power the sorcerer's stone like the magical item that's like at the crux of the story yeah I mean, no, <laughs> uh, because it's something that appears without any prior setup. It's not okay. a so it goes in the legitimate same sort of part of the story. It just is a way for an author to get out of a sticky situation and they have no idea what to do. OK, it's it's like I understand it's akin to someone. Here's an example. Um, you know, the it's a huge story and they're about to reach their doom and then they wake up and it was Jacob's all a dream ladder. or like a sword falls out of the sky okay. that's the perfect okay. instrument to defend them from this specific enemy but there hasn't been any build-up to get us to that point okay i understand that makes sense to me um so <laughs> Now you this know. is a really good energetic <laughs> way to start this episode. <laughs> Vocabulary. This is, okay, this is ridiculous because I'm so excited to talk about this book. I'm just very tired, <laughs> but we're going to make it through. Um, 
I would like to, Madeline, have you read the book jacket really quickly so we can quickly spoil the plot. Um, if you would like to read the jacket, I would love to do the little plot spoiler because I was having a mental exercise the other day and I was like, I think I can describe this book in three sentences. Nice. Nice. Okay. And yeah, the back of the book is all praise for other books. So oh, let's talk about the cover quickly, as we are wont to do. The cover is lovely. I love, love this cover. cover. Um, this, as I'll get into, was like one of my top five favorite books, bar none, when I was a kid. Um, and the cover was definitely part of it. I had I had a paperback version. We have a hardcover now. <laughs> the way I say that is like the paperback grew up. And <laughs> it's really it's taken beautiful. on a cardboardy like it's a really sort of nice tone. cover. But uh, I really like it's it. It's a lovely edition. Um, the uh, cover is a painting of Nan wearing her pink school blankets on the broomstick, flying through the night sky past a school window. And the art style is very pleasing. Yeah, and it it very um, comfortably sums up a lot of what's appealing about the book. And there's smoke too. Yeah, and there's little wisps smoke motif floating yeah. around the uh, gate surrounding her, or the archway. Mm-hmm. All right, so Madeline. And now I will read. What does the publisher have to say about this book? No, I mean the plot, how they <laughs> describe it. The thing we always do. It's just an excerpt. Oh, okay. It says, Someone in this class is a witch, said the anonymous note passed to Mr. Crossley with the geography homework. Everybody in 6B knew about the note, but only the headmistress of Larwood House knew which of the pupils were witch orphans. Any one of these orphans might have inherited the magic of their ancestors, and they were just at the age when these powers would make themselves known. 6B was nervous. If the note was true, then someone in the class could be burned at the stake, unless they could conjure up the old magician Crestomancy to save them. That is not an excerpt. <laughs> excerpt. It's not an excerpt at all. But it starts out with an expert. Expert? An expert. <laughs> we're, we're like spiraling so hard right now. <laughs> And I have a lot to say. I have a lot of intelligent, I'm doing adjacent things yeah. to say about this book. So it starts out as an excerpt. And then ends into, like, basically a spoiler in and of itself. I didn't read this ever before I read the book, which I'm glad about because it it's so... This is really the kind of book that's wonderful to just start reading and not have any background about it. Yes, and part of that is because of the way Diana Wynne-Jones uses uh, defamiliarization. She puts you into a situation that feels like it's set in our world. There's so many components that seem like, okay, this is something that I could experience. But mm-hmm. then you slowly, through these little clues here and there, realize that there are fundamental differences between this reality and ours, yeah. um, which is so much fun to read, especially as a kid where I feel like there's a lot of pandering done to you in the literature that For you're sure. exploring. Yeah. Um, and everything's clearly laid out and summarized, just like in The Pluckiest Boy in School. <laughs> we'll talk more about soon. Um, Grace sent me an excited text when she got to the... That <laughs> I just got to the pluckiest, the pluckiest boy in school. Boy in school. Scrum. Um <laughs> Sounds like something the wee free men would say. It actually. does, yeah, but said by a squeaky clean British schoolboy yeah. <laughs> instead of a little tatted up Scottish pixie. Um, so my summary for this book is in a world very similar to ours, witches exist, but it's illegal to be a witch. A An enchanter 
comes to save children at a boarding school who are all witches and in doing so puts their world back into the proper one where it belongs. Yeah, that's good. That's, uh, I think, I mean, I think that's everything you really need to know. Yeah. Uh, and although witch um, is usually a pretty gendered term mm-hmm. in our world and there's, it's not like the terms witch and warlock and enchanter are all, they can apply they to their own classes of any gender. And they have their own classes of magic yeah. to distinguish mm-hmm. between They're them. They're just categories of mm-hmm. magic user. They don't say anything about the user's gender. Yeah. Um, so essentially this book is set in a boarding school called Larwood House. And because in this reality it is illegal to be a witch, there end up being many orphan children whose parents are caretakers. Witch orphans. Witch orphans whose parents or caretakers were burned, um, which is the means of execution for witches. So the children are sent to this boarding house. And there are some students there who aren't witch orphans as well. But it's a shabby sort of place. Um, I feel like Jones has a lot of fun um, creating sort of satire of typical boarding school stories and the way that schools are portrayed in kids' books, especially British ones. I mean, if any of our British listeners out there uh, know anything more about a lot of things we're going to discuss today, actually, about Guy Fawkes, about the boarding school stories that seem kind of ubiquitous um, for uh, some groups of kids in England, like what you're given to read. Um, And actually reminded me a lot of the book Boy by Roald Dahl, which is his um, autobiography about when he was a child. And he goes to a series. He goes to a series of horrendous boarding schools, but it's mostly about their use of physical punishment. Uh, But there are also a lot of great funny details between the two um, about how disgusting the food is, how cold it is all the time. Uh, Just like these general markers of discomfort Mm -hmm. that are always present at these schools. Um, And uh, I thought that that was one of the funniest components of the book, just how miserable the school itself is. Mm -hmm. Um, And the students and teachers within it like everyone is unhappy yeah and almost everyone is also a horrible person yeah (laughs) um which is a little different from a typical story i mean we spend a lot of time with a character like well charles morgan Mm -hmm. i would say we spend the most time with but he's so unpleasant especially by the end of the book i because i kept trying to give him the benefit of a doubt and more chances of at the end of the book when he's actively fighting against what Crestomancy is trying to do, just being a little jerk. I just kept being like, oh, screw you, Charles. Yeah, I mean, he basically, in the end, he doesn't want the two worlds to be properly put back together because it means that he'll lose his powers yeah, as a but witch. He's being stupid and selfish. Oh, he's awful. Yeah. I mean, he's he is one of the outcasts of their class. Mm-hmm. Um, but an interesting marker in this story is that none of the outcasts actually try to make friends with each other with the exception of Nirupam, mm-hmm. um, who tries to reach out at various moments to his fellow students. Um mm-hmm. But I think that in some ways that also feels kind of true to life. I mean, Madeline and I both had some tough times when we were kids in school. 
And I do think that it's it's the reality that kids who are at the lowest rung of the social ladder feel like they're going to be even less popular if they associate with one another. Yeah, I actually, yeah. <laughs> and there's this interesting component that all of the outcasts are witches, although we don't realize that until further on in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also all have physical characteristics that make them visibly different from the other students. Um, Nan, she they keep referring to her as being overweight. Mm-hmm. Um, Charles has glasses yeah, that he's glasses. constantly pushing back up on his eyes to better give horrible glares to everyone he interacts with. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The description of his glares always has made me really happy, especially because I'm I'm a glare too. (laughs) He gets good glares. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm into the glaring. Um, They're so awful that at one point he actually thinks that he's caused Mr. Wentworth to disappear. To disappear his glare. He glared at him so hard. Um, And then Nirupam is constantly referred to as Indian Mm -hmm. um, or like they referred and this is by the narrator this is another interesting convention the other kids don't pick on him because of his race Mm -mm. but the narrator comments on like him looking yellow or on his brown skin Mm -hmm. Um, so I feel like it's kind of constantly being referenced and we're being reminded that like this is another reason why he's different is is he an outcast though I feel like he's a lot more he have, he definitely has higher standing than Charles Morgan and uh, Nan. I I think so too, but I also think that home. I mean, like when he, you consider he the other groups of, of kids, there's no other group that he could belong to. Right. Like he's never going to be in with Simon and his do-gooders, mm-hmm. and he's never going to be in with Dan and his psychopaths, um, right. casual psychopaths. Uh, and I'm sure there are other students that just don't get featured. Um, so I guess, yeah, because he doesn't have like a group that he belongs in technically. And he's, he's always kind of getting yeah. lumped in with them when there is something bizarre happening. Mm-hmm. Like that's just kind yeah. of where he naturally falls. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I thought that that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Brian Wentworth is the other outcast, but he's <laughs> also awful. <laughs> he, yeah, I think is the worst character yeah. in the book. He, he only bad, cares about though. himself. He's, and he actively. To the point of harming other students or being willing to put them in the harm's in, way very serious harm's way it's not just like letting someone take the blame for you and getting in trouble like the actions that he takes he well he implicates other students in potentially being named as witches and burned they're either active overtly malicious or with such reckless intent that they're basically malicious malicious and brian wentworth in the end um so, yeah, just to do a huge fast forward really quickly, something that I think betrays some of the students' uh, hidden secrets and their real personalities in some ways is that at the very end of the book, we get a scene in which we see all of them in the new version of their world after it's been put back into the world where it belongs. And Brian and Simon are best friends. And I always thought that that meant that Brian really just is awful because Simon is truly awful. Yeah, yeah, they're both awful. (laughs) We already know how selfish Simon is, but he's just in the golden boy position, so no one really faults him for it. Mm -hmm. Well, Um, none of the teachers fault him. None of the adults do. Well, and most of the students follow his lead. I mean, they constantly turn to him for what should be happening. But that's because he is so, like, he's like the... He's been putting a figure up. 
place of authority by the teachers. Yeah, and he's yeah. like he's a sociopath, right? He's like a narcissistic, like really good at manipulating other people. Like they just need his approval. Yeah, I think so. I mean, how do you feel about our ongoing discussion about whether all children are terrible after? <laughs> also, I'm saying this as a total joke. <laughs> no, I I think that this book did do a good job of not making any child too good. Nirupam was almost too good, but he did have like did have some selfish moments because mm-hmm. like. Children are are just, you know, they're forming humans. They mm-hmm. haven't often really gotten to a point where they can exactly... I mean, children as a whole are always, as a group, they're going to fall consistently lower on the morality spectrum mm-hmm. than adults as a group. Well, you know, and lots of adults don't reach high levels of morality either, but children are just going to be lower because they're younger. Well, and I also <laughs> think that in an environment like this like this really vicious school where they're constantly being undercut mocked um targeted with sometimes violent bullying um they're so desperate to look out for themselves and then also make sure that they don't draw too much attention to themselves in Mm -hmm. any way so that goes for both doing anything um that might call attention to you or standing up for someone who might need your help it's a very like pack animal mentality yeah, where you're totally. fighting really hard and it's like often like you're saying the further you are down the totem pole sometimes the more brutal they can be because mm-hmm. they have so little to lose and like yeah yeah I mean Brian takes comfort that Charles Morgan's trying to give him it's hard for me to not use their last names when I say them because the book constantly identifies yeah. them by their Which first like. name surname yeah. um Charles tells, you know, is trying to comfort Brian and help him uh, move past bullying and stand up for himself. And Brian takes Charles's advice to mean that he should, you know, potentially identify him as a witch and yeah. run away um, and then just continue. To, uh, OK, yeah, we, we don't need to harp on Brian. I guess we don't have a segment where we call it like the true villain of the book. but <laughs> It's Brian. I mean, it's also uh, institutionalized uh, prejudice. That's, you know, really the the problem oh, yeah. in the book itself mm-hmm. yeah um I was like, which i mean which the children managed to overcome just through like the force of their personalities which mm-hmm. is really really cool but yeah. we'll talk more about that in a little bit i wanted to um as a uh companion to talking about the children talk about the adults in the book who are also really strange um Sad. they're either totally useless yes or unknowingly dangerous to the children. Yeah. Um, like when Miss Cadwallader, 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 I know, I just throw the pronunciation disclaimer out <laughs> right now. I did look up how to pronounce Nirupam, but it's, I'm not doing it correctly still. Um, <laughs> she is so careless that she puts Nan's real name on the sheet listing the kids who need to sit at high table at lunch and outs her as not only being named Dulcinea, which is the name of the fabled arch witch, mm-hmm. a really, really prominent figure in witchcraft in their world, um, but as a descendant of her, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, people don't know right away, but Nan knows. And mm-hmm. then it, you know, kind of becomes all consuming to her. Um, 
But at the same time, that helps her realize that she wants to kind of entertain the prospect of having powers mm-hmm. and of her true identity. Um, so it, it ends up working in Nan's favor. But what an awful thing to do to have a child entrust you with some kind of secret. Mm-hmm. And then you just don't care enough to and follow I do, through. I'm thinking now that I think it kind of was intentional and it's smart that the people actively have so many flaws probably because it's something that comes from the world being wrong yeah and being so in danger all the time Mm -hmm. because you know that most of the people are witches most of the people who are witches know they're witches and they're terrified of anyone finding out because they will be put to death so of course they're in that kind of fear makes you into you know, usually a more kind of broken, stilted person, you know, that it's not making some of the people, obviously it brings them to a level of very high morality and idealism, like the people who help witches escape. But for most of the people, they go the other way. (laughs) Yeah. And I loved that we were kind of the secret was maintained throughout most of the book to the reader as well, that most of these kids are actually witches. Mm-hmm. Um, and we learn about it in this great scene where Crestomancy is in the classroom pretending to be an inquisitor, yeah, um, checking the school for witches after some mysterious things go down. And he has Brian, who he's turned invisible so that he won't be difficult, yeah. <laughs> hold this golden cigarette case and walk around yeah. the room and then beep at anyone who's a witch. Um, and we, yeah, we don't know how uh, He's communicating to Brian who's a witch and who isn't. But uh, everyone who is called out as a witch, which is all except like three of the students in the class, yeah. um, just stands at the front of the room and is like, oh, God, yeah. oh, God, they found me. Uh-huh. And then we learn about all the little horrible things they've used their witchcraft to do, yeah. which is mostly just mean pranks on yeah. each other. <laughs> such... Really, Charles Morgan <sighs> is the only one who does anything that could be considered big magic and he was also just trying to do a he was prank. doing it to be <laughs> yeah to be crappy to another student as well yeah. and get back at him but he inadvertently you know set a spell that could unravel the very fabric of their world yes um and it's it's amazing to read that back and think about just how dangerous that spell is because what he says is that anything that simon says will be true mm-hmm. um so simon suddenly has control over the fabric of reality and simon's like so selfish and dumb that he doesn't even really he doesn't think big with it no, he, he just doesn't. makes things just make, like turn first he to makes gold. money <laughs> yeah then he gives himself the golden touch yeah um and uh then nirapum intervenes and tries to uh, take it off him but first doesn't do a great job but he does you know he does an okay job first simon uh becomes a fool but then he becomes a very clever fool oh, and I he, love just, he just sits at his desk with looking this cutting. look on his face just <laughs> trying to figure out how people are trying to trick him yeah. um which is hilarious just another moment where it's really fun to imagine a, a film adaptation of this mm-hmm. um but what Nirupam ultimately does is tells him to say nothing i say will come true yeah <laughs> which is just so that he's bad just yeah but that's ultimately the key to fixing their world mm-hmm. because if we can move on to that part of the book sure um there is 
a convention in a lot of Diana Wynne Jones's books um, where she's very interested in alternate realities. Mm -hmm. And we already touched on this in Hell's Moving Castle. It comes up a lot in Hell's yeah. Moving Castle, yeah. Um, and they specifically go to the version of Wales in Hell's Moving Castle that seems like it's at least fantasy adjacent but could also be our world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, going from a world that's filled with magic to one without. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, which is why Howl left that world and mm -hmm. came to another one. Yeah. And Christomancy has a similar world hopping power. He is meant to be the guardian and enforcer of how people use magic throughout mm -hmm. many, many different universes. Um, and he is called to this one by Nan and Estelle um, to, when they're trying to find a way for Nan to escape the Inquisitors. Mm -hmm. They have no idea what they're doing when they call him. Mm -hmm. They just get a spell that says to yeah. say his name three times in a hilariously fantasy oriented grove. Like I can't remember what it's called. It's it's like a little ring of trees. Um, it's something that about the oaks, but they're beech oh, yeah, trees. Oh yeah, port, port oaks. Yeah, but they're yeah. beech trees. No, it's it's really funny. Just another moment where Jones kind of mocks usual the typical fantasy tropes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, but. Uh, Christomancy has to figure out why this world is wrong because he realizes right away that it doesn't make sense that there's so much magic, but mm -hmm. magic is also illegal. Yeah. Um, and there's like too much magic. It doesn't make sense. There's right. It actually how much there yeah, is. kept some magic that another world mm -hmm. should have had. Yeah. And after a great deal of uh, pretending to torture students, <laughs> um, he ends up figuring out that it's actually uh, the gunpowder plot mm -hmm. yeah. that went differently than it was supposed to, but not quite differently enough for the world to split off completely. Mm -hmm. So as an American child, when I first read this book, I was really confused this was the first time i heard of guy fox actually this was my first interaction with it i kind of thought that it was a made-up thing and i thought it was a little mm -hmm. jarring of the author to include such a silly thing in her book and then i actually looked it up i was like oh this is an actual thing well the thing is i mean she actually destabilizes you so much with the way that she um makes you feel like it's our world but with this these few crucial differences that i yeah, I was thinking that it was the same thing as, um, okay, major Buffy spoilers. So if you're currently watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Or have any Slayer, plans to ever. Or have any plans to. This show's very old. But Just don't listen for I know, like it's, 20 seconds. It's on Netflix now. But yeah, skip ahead 20 seconds. It reminds me of Dawn showing up um, without any introduction. Oh, yeah. And as the viewer, you're just left feeling like, okay, what? who what is this person? What are you person? doing, Why is everyone pretending like Buffy has always had a sister? Uh -huh. But it, you know, as we learn, she's actually a key, the key. She's something that was, just a that was planted. Yeah, yeah, she's not even a and real her, person. The memories of her are planted, too. Similar to that. Okay, you can start listening again. Hello. Um, Unplug your ears. <laughs> Unplug them. <laughs> uh, yeah, just a special treat for anyone who didn't have their ears plugged. Us screaming <laughs> in Muppety voices. Oh, God. <laughs> I always scream. You remember where I was. Like a um, it makes you feel like maybe this is a narrative trick. And it's something, I don't know, I always felt like Guy Fox was, I just had to pretend that he was someone really important to our history who didn't actually exist. Hmm. It felt to me like it, like he was a 
key. Um, I see. Yeah. And when I was a kid reading this, I mean, it would be really different to read it now. Yeah. I find that when I read new books for the first time and I see something that I don't quite recognize, I'm like, oh, just a quick goog. And OK, now I can keep reading. A quick goog, as the kids say. <laughs> I'm cool. I'm trending. Um, <laughs> Hashtag quick goog. So, yeah, and I, you can't do that when it's, you know, 1997 and you're reading Witch Week for the first time. I, I barely remember. I don't think that I remember the time before you could just look it up on the Internet. Yeah, I mean, I do remember a long time ago when I was little and I'd be like, Mom, what does this word mean? And she'd be like look it up in the dictionary and then I would google it <laughs> all right well I'm older than Madeline as you probably know by Only now a little bit because I think we're right on I just, just I just on either side of the line the cusp and to the point where you were already comfortable with just going and looking something up whereas I would automatically not think to do mm-hmm. that we had because you just got the internet at a younger age yeah we yeah. did still have some encyclopedias yes the big Merriam Webster dictionary yeah. With the little mm-hmm. um, indented tabs yeah, to find the different yeah. letters uh-huh. of the alphabet. Um, so anyway, we as American readers are probably pretty different. Um, I'm sure that uh, if you were a British kid reading this, you probably knew who Guy Fox was because yeah. you have a holiday um, that is designed around him. But just for those who don't know... Um, I think it's valuable to talk a little bit about the history behind him because oh, sure, it yeah. explains why. Well, okay, I'll get, I'll get to this. It it's Grace's Education Corner. Grace's Corner, stay or leave if you don't want to learn. <laughs> okay, so yeah, many Americans only know about Guy Fox from you know, the mask, the Guy Fox mask from V for Vendetta. Um, but he was a historical figure who planned the gunpowder plot along with a, a whole group of English Catholics. Um, he wasn't the leader. He was just the person who was caught mm-hmm. um, because he was the one with all the gunpowder in the House of Lords. Um, and contrary to popular belief, he was not uh, like an anarchist anti-government not he, exactly. He just wanted a different kind. No, of they just wanted. Yeah, they just wanted a different yeah. government. They wanted. Um, they wanted Catholicism. Right. To he be was more uh, the allowed. Reason I bring that up is just because yeah. when I learned that, I was like, oh, so he's really been misused and co-opted no. as a you know symbol of what he symbolizes no yeah they because they they didn't even want to overthrow the british government entirely they just wanted to kill king james and put his nine-year-old daughter on the throne Mm -hmm. um so that they could try to bring in a new era um because that would destabilize things because there wouldn't be an adult monarch so it's just a coup yeah um so he uh yeah they wanted better or greater religious tolerance um this happened in 1605 on the 5th of november um, yeah. so to be Grace's cool again. Hugo Weaving yeah, imitation. <laughs> Wait till you hear my impression of him as Elrond. It's even better. It's pretty good. So the plot, the whole plot was revealed to the authorities. They came and they found Guy Fawkes um, with 36 barrels of gunpowder. So if this went down, it was going to work. You know, people were going to get exploded. Um, and they arrested him. And then they tortured him in the Tower of London until he gave up the names of all the other co-conspirators. Um, 
and then he was convicted and hanged, drawn, and quartered, but he jumped off the scaffold before they could finish the hanging and broke his neck, so he didn't have to actually experience being drawn and quartered. That was pretty um, smart. It all, I mean, th- there's so many, there's so many interesting components of this event. It's hard to, it's hard to think about it as something real that actually happened, and I, I do have a special relationship with it because I've been rereading this book since I was a young kid. Mm-hmm. So because it's framed in this fantasy novel, it's hard for me to see it as completely real. Okay. But I feel like Diana Wynne Jones found the perfect historical event to choose as the breaking point because it's so easy for it to go slightly differently, but still nothing really changed. And it, and it is just a weird, archaic, brutal story. Well, it is, and the thing is, even though Guy Fox succeeds in the book in Witch Week. He mm-hmm. blows up the House of Lords. He does it in the middle of the night, so no one's there. Yeah, so, so he still mucks it He up, doesn't kinda. impact any of the historical figures they were hoping to. They don't kill the king. Um, so that's why the world broke off slightly, but mm-hmm. still stayed connected yeah. by you know the, the rainbow uh, stripe that Nan talks about. Like her. cells that get stuck in mitosis. Yeah, that's, um, that's what it made me think. Of. I wouldn't use that. As Grace an is not into that. <laughs> it's okay. We we won't. Yeah, we won't talk about that. Um, but uh, then there's also this great connection between the way Britain, you know, processed that and Guy Fawkes's legacy and the way witches are treated because Guy Fawkes is used. Um, his effigy is burned on bonfire night once a year, um, and the witches traditionally have been burned when they're you know when they're caught i'm putting quotes around what i'm saying i don't believe that there have ever been witches um or that a witch has ever been appropriately executed um just people accused and murdered as yeah witches. exactly just non-witches who are yeah killed because people think they're witches anyway um it's the perfect uh future like this intermingling of the effigies with the actual witches and Mm -hmm. like the misplaced energy of that explosion just like turning into this magic that infests everyone's bodies but isn't seen as something that's allowable in Mm -hmm. proper society yeah so that's my (laughs) education corner um that's good that was uh exciting listening passionate informative something yeah a lot of, uh, lot of singing. That's good. <laughs> oh, fan. Okay, so we've hinted at this a bit so far. Um, wow, I've got so much crackly, crackly voice today. I'm really sorry. <laughs> and you know, teen boy heartthrob. I know that's that's me. It's <laughs> never gonna change. Uh, puberty never stops for this one. <laughs> If you got a deep voice, it's going to go forever. Moving from a perfect discussion, because we're talking about growing up. Segway. As a kid. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do from now on when I need to. I'm just going to shout. Just Segway. Hit your knee with your fist and say, Segway. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about childhood perceptions versus adult perceptions. As I've mentioned, this book was really important to me. I've probably read this book, in all honesty, like over 50 
times. It used to be my summer read, at, mm-hmm. like as in I would read it over and over again all Because <laughs> when you're a kid, summer read means something different than when you're an adult. It honestly shaped my perception of fantasy, of history in a lot of ways, of um, alternate realities. I have the unique perspective of reading this before Harry Potter, um, before it came out, even, because I'm old. Uh, well, I kind of, yeah. But I was at the perfect age for yeah. it. Harry, The first Harry Potter book came out when I was in third grade, so I was nine. Yeah, because mom bought it for us, like, right away. We read the first one before the second one had come out. Well... You're not speaking into your mic anymore. Still not speaking into your mic. Or am I? I'm right here. Oh, your Wi-Fi is crapped. It's really bad. It actually works the slowest in my room. Okay. The Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone was published in the UK in 1997 which means it would have come out in the u.s in 98 which is correct with my age estimate that i just made okay grace was right um yet again (laughs) get used to it (laughs) anyway as a child i i worshipped these students and it felt i mean worshipped them in a lot of ways because they were witches and that was cool and i wish that i had magic powers um but also because they were real feeling kids and they yeah, reminded they me really of the children that I, that I interacted with at school every day, like the bad ones and the even more bad ones. Um, and then the, the nice ones who would pop up like Estelle and mm-hmm. say, you know, I've, I want to help you. Yeah. I'm trying to do something good to break this awful pattern at our school this this book got me into all of diana Wynne jones's books i read it before i read any of the crest ramsey books that probably added to my confusion although the way he's inserted i haven't read any of the other story, crest ramsey books and this fine. was yeah, yeah totally you fine can, you for can me handle it as him coming in yeah. to help them from the outside um and i haven't i haven't read it now probably for i mean honestly it hasn't been that long because of my chronic rereading of it it's been at least 10 years um but it was just an absolute joy to reread i was almost brought to tears just just by my happiness multiple times and little moments like reading the pluckiest boy in school line um i laughed so hard <laughs> or nan's um her rant about the disgusting food where she's like transfixed and goes into a sort of horrific state where she can't stop saying disgusting things. That is something that I always feel like I'm not always feel like I'm on the verge on, but I have had that sentiment before. Definitely. Especially when you're in a situation where you have to behave a certain way and you're just like, Oh God, what, what am I about to do? No, I've totally gotten into that where I, you know, you start to tell a story and then you're like, Oh my God, this is not a good story for this company. And then you just keep going and going and you're dying on the inside. (laughs) Yep. I, I do that like every time I meet someone new, but it's a double-edged sword because sometimes people are very put off by you and sometimes they're like, I like you. Well, they open up in return. Yeah. Yeah. Because yes, you've put it out there. It's an easy way to 
not only get to know someone, but actually have an interesting conversation. It's true. I'm just That's not about part of it. Stuff. I know is self sabotage, where I'm just like I can't go through like what's your job and what's your face and where you going? <laughs> what's to? your face made of? <laughs> like I'd so much rather just immediately be like, so um, who's your favorite Lord of the Rings character? and why essay a question and I'm sure that like half of you listening to this are like I never want to meet you and that's, <laughs> that's fine I'm maybe not everyone's friend that's but I cool. you know what I bet if you're listening to this podcast it's more likely than not that you could talk a lot about your favorite Lord of the Rings character totally so now that I've a winding road that one taken over this segment <laughs> madeline what was your experience like reading this how long has it been since you read it i think that similar to a lot of other books we've done i read this shortly after you got it so i think i was very young you must have been like eight seven or eight i was really young when i read this um probably a little older than that mm-hmm. yeah it is i mean there, it, it, I think, can be read by young children. Mm-hmm, totally. Also, I was very confused when I was young. I had yeah, no idea what was it, going it's on. The level of comprehension isn't necessarily very low. There. Yeah. It's challenging. Like, uh-huh. It's a challenging book. And it was the kind of thing I, what really struck me is the part where they say they go to watch the senior students in the bushes. Oh, I have yeah. A distinct memory yeah. of when I was a little kid just being like, what I don't know. What are they? Mm-hmm. Just why are they all standing in the bushes? That's is this something that big kids do? That little kids are like watch them do? Like I literally I couldn't understand what they were doing other than just yeah. like standing next to each other in the bushes. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I funnily enough had an experience that was so similar to that that prepared me for reading about this. Maybe the watcher where, or the watchee? No, I well watcher. Oh okay, watchee. <laughs> The watched? You were both? <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know what that means. Watcher or watchy? It's Sorry. the watcher or the watched. It's the it's a contract terminology. Oh, okay, no, for no, Madeline. I closed Madeline's law corner forever last episode. <laughs> <laughs> the door. Is, Loyal listeners the way will is remember. Shut. Yeah, no, not going there. Um, no, I was. Uh, I guess you know, I was um, biking to I was biking to grade school with my friend Christine. And okay, so you saw you were not I seen and necking. No, oh my god, that's no, why I was, was like, wait, was what? 10. That doesn't sound like you. Okay, Madeline, <laughs> that's what I was trying to ask. No. <laughs> okay, I was. Biking to school. You didn't say when you had the experience. I wasn't implying that you're. No, that I I said that prepared me for the book. Okay, I was not listening closely. I know. Okay. (laughs) I was biking to school with Christine, and we went through this park that was around the corner from our house at the time, Highland Park. Um, oh, okay. That the, the, tra- yeah. the train ran through, and one of our babysitters is actually a male babysitter of you ours. Told I've told you about, about this. You before. told me about this so much yeah. because it made such a big impression. It was on you. crazy. Yeah. It was crazy, and I'm not gonna name names right it was now. A, it obviously, was like an open park. Yeah, it's a huge it's park. Not, but there's it's not a train. Private. There's a train station at the top of the park, um, and then a little hill going down. And like a broad park with some trees in mm-hmm. it, but because of the train station, there's also a parking lot right there because it's in the suburbs of Chicago, so people park and ride to mm-hmm. work. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, there's a lot of foot traffic. But we were just, we were going through because Christine lost her watch that morning. Oh my God, could I make this story any longer? (laughs) (laughs) My friend lost her watch. We took our bikes to the park. The watch was blue. It had hearts on it. Okay, we were walking by the train station and I saw one of our babysitters who went to... Oh my God. Okay, shutting up. Christine lost her watch. So we, oh my God. Okay, I'll fix this somehow when I edit this. (laughs) I don't know how, but I'll do it. Anyway, our babysitter in his school uniform, he went to one of the private high schools that you take a train to get to from the suburbs. They're on the way toward downtown Chicago. And he was laying in the grass with a girl also in a private school uniform. So that's, I think, one reason why it feels so similar to Witch Week because Uh of the uniforms and like the private school component. Um, And they were just like rolling around and making out with each other. It was so... Oh, I thought that they were just like doing little smooches no, i didn't realize they were actually they were laying on, on like, the ground and on top of each other like oh it was just in nuts. the grass at I, Highland park i only recognized him because his face kind of separated at one moment oh, um that's so yeah and then i was just like ah but oh. he never he never babysat us again because i think then i was old enough almost okay. and then we moved yeah um, but uh, that was moment he the kid that, always comes back to me when I yeah when I read that scene. Was he the kid that would play lacrosse with his friend in the backyard while they were supposed to be babysitting? No, him? he was cool. He was the one who did um, like the rug monster. Like he would roll his oh, whole body up yeah, in the rug and attack us. <laughs> I remember. I love that one. He's a great babysitter. It was great. It was super fun. Shout out to you, yeah. man. Um. <laughs> Anyway, oh my God, what is happening? (laughs) Madeline, please continue. Okay, the school, seniors in the bushes, this is where they go in the school to make out with each other. And it's it's weird for the younger kids to watch because they don't have sexual feelings yet. Yeah, but I didn't understand what the heck was going on with that um when I read it when I was a little kid and that's really like all I remember I remember being confused about Guy Fawkes confused about that um so I'll go on to say that this time when I was reading it one of the things that I really appreciated is thinking about the way that Diana Wynne Jones can use this um alternate realities situation in a way to have all of her stories be connected mm-hmm. and yet take place in completely different worlds where yeah, like so nothing has to, to do be consistent. It won't break the canon or like rupture the world or anything. And as soon as Crestomancy showed up, the book started reminding me a lot more of Hell's Moving Castle. But before then, not at all. And I love both books. Mm-hmm. It's just that she's able to make such separate worlds and then have them linked in this way, which Mm -hmm. I thought was really cool. And for a second, I just a second, I was like, wait, is Grestomancy Howl? And then I was like, oh, yeah, no, there's some similarities there. I mean, they're very dapper. Right. And then immediately I was like, oh, my gosh, or Grestomancy has his stuff so much more together than how oh, yeah. did yeah no he's incredible he's such a smooth operator yeah 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 and that's why i was like oh no he's not hell but i mean he I, can constantly misremember everyone's names and still be charming yeah exactly i did <laughs> so from there when he showed up i had a hard time um picturing him you know in your like mental half-formed world that you're doing like while you're reading a book 
maybe other people have more solid imaginings in their mind but mine is always more like a dream where things are not all the way formed Hmm. but anyways um the children and the adults in the book no one is described as being just straight up attractive no at all most of them are actively unattractive or strange looking so when he showed up and suddenly he's supposed to be really attractive. Yeah, even someone like Simon, who's supposed to be, you know, revered, he was always described as like smirking mm-hmm. or yeah, um, never yeah, just having like some kind attractive. of unappealing look on his yeah. face. Yeah. Um, so then when Crestomancy showed up, I had a real hard time picturing him and fitting him into the world. Yeah. So I just. Yeah, which is basically a bunch of grotesques. So I knew that he wasn't. Howl, but I just decided to picture him as Howl from the Miyazaki movie. <laughs> <laughs> who has once uh, he has black hair? Once he has dark hair, yeah. I thought it was really funny because I was just picturing like that howl yeah. prancing around in a mostly anime style where no one yeah. else in the book was an anime. And then it was like, and like a train of invisible children holding onto his hand, trailing <laughs> right. behind him. Yeah, yeah, as he like walks along with that angelic look on his face, yeah. um, sounding like Christian Bale. And then I thought about how much fun it would be to have a Miyazaki imagining of this book. It would be mm, like so totally. incredible. Yeah. Oh, uh, I would kill for that. Yeah. There's literally no way it can happen. Maybe a Studio Ghibli adaptation. Right. Or yeah. But um, anyways, so that's my long and winding. That was great. Thank you for that. I'm I'm in such a good mood. <laughs> just kind of smiling. Yeah, I've got such a big <laughs> smile on my face. Um, yeah, and I mean, the last thing I'll say is reading this as an adult, I was so impressed by how postmodern this book is. Um, like, it's really advanced literature in a lot of ways. I guess I'll try to very quickly define postmodernism. I was going to ask. It was a reaction to modernism. Um, postmodernism says that... Um, There is basically no uh, path of right or wrong, and there's no one reality that's true. There's no one uh, good or truth at all. It's all just based on your own experience, which is like a collection of societal and cultural um, oppressive forces, basically. Um, but, uh, But it also, like draws upon these past narratives that were seen as true or valuable mm-hmm. and like skews them and shows you uh, why they why they aren't really what you what you thought they were it's it, you can't really define postmodernism because it's but it sounds it's whole, like this book kind the whole of. definition is that like you can't define that. anything yeah totally and it actually um it's it's funny while it's also challenging and thought provoking, like irony is a huge part of postmodernism. I like the way that it questions what is and what isn't and how the world doesn't even really matter. I mean, they get their reality put back into another one. Mm-hmm. And in the end, they all just slide back into the people that they should have been all along. Mm-hmm. And life goes on. It's actually almost, I felt like it was almost a perfect ending because it kind of, it avoided a lot of the sadness that I think comes at the end of fantasy novels where you want to just keep spending time in this magical world Mm -hmm. with these fantastical characters. Mm -hmm. But instead, the magic is stripped away. There is no magic. And then they're just regular school kids in a classroom talking Mm -hmm. about like their mundane plans for the weekend. Um, 
But then there's this little joyful moment at the end where um, Mr. Crossley finds a note that says someone in this class is a witch. And everyone's just like, I'm the witch. I'm the witch. I want to be the witch. And that's just that's the close of the book. I I thought that that was perfection. Like I was Mm -hmm. so impressed by Diana Wynne-Jones creating this perfect cyclical story. And it's also kind of funny because House Moving Castle is one of the few other books that I've read in my life that at the end I wasn't upset. You weren't sad. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is also yeah. crazy because like House Moving Castle is so important to me that at the end of that book I wouldn't feel upset because it just, well, we don't need to go back and talk about a book we already did. But yeah, I, she's very good at ending books mm-hmm. without it seeming like an end. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. And that's that's so impressive. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, there's a great conclusion. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very For satisfying. Sure. It's not left all wishy-washy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now that I've muddled through that, and you had so many, like, quizzical looks at me while I was talking <laughs> about it, so, yeah, we'll see how that sounds in the end. Uh, let me know, academics out there who have better ways of discussing this than I do. Um you know what it's time for? Pretend food. Time to pretend, <laughs> pretend with some food. I guess we're making little musical interludes for all yeah. of our segments today. Yeah, yeah. Um, today, we're going to be talking about primarily, I think, the disgusting Gross feast food. that Nan imagines while they're eating lunch at high table. Um, so she and Charles and Nirupam are in this really really uncomfortable situation where they uh, are the students chosen to eat with the headmistress and the uh, you know dignified guests who are currently visiting the school or whatever mm-hmm. um i don't really know how boarding schools work as you've probably been able to tell um and as we mentioned earlier nan knows right away that she's going to say something inappropriate and then it just sort of spills out of her as the different courses come out and the first one is prawns in some kind of yellow sauce and nan proclaims them jointed worms in custard from the bottom of a dustbin and speaks about them at great length in a really lurid way it's so disgusting it it puts me off my appetite gross um and then the next course which is something called hot pot um i don't know what that is i figured it was like a kind of stew stew. yeah some sort of stew um she says that the tomatoes are small neatly skinned creatures um and that the uh that they're in dishwashing water and accompanied by cat food old donuts and dead flies (laughs) And throughout this, it's from Charles Morgan's perspective at this point, and he is just like wishing that he could murder her. Yeah, he I don't, hates I don't her know so if much. yeah he gets angrier at any other yeah. point in the book. And this is a boy who literally has a code he's developed so that he can write in his journal about how much he hates everyone. Yeah, he's a, a <laughs> he's a master of hatred. Yeah, yeah. he's a rough kid. <laughs> yep. Um, and yeah, it just it was just so funny reading that and thinking about the assorted like British boarding school horrors and imaginary bowls of slop Mm. that kids have to eat yeah Um, it was like the perfect skewering of all of them the rice pudding too just sounded really sad and terrible yeah and nan doesn't even describe the rice pudding she just stuffs her mouth and then kind of forces herself to stop talking yeah but Uh, but like i love rice pudding too so it just made me really sad because i could really imagine this like 
disgusting, slimy, watered-down rice pudding that is yeah. just wrong in all the right ways. <laughs> well, to counter that, there is also a really fun piece of pretend food, which is the Black Forest cake yeah. that is actually... Uh, Charles Morgan's spikes, yeah, his, his shoes. shoes, his running shoes, um, that Nirupam uses his one piece of witchcraft in the book to turn them into a cake, uh, just because he hates Stan Swift so much. But I don't, I don't understand if they turn back into shoes That's or if the they're thing, just like a bad cake. Dan Smith is going through gastrointestinal distress for the literally the rest of the book. Yeah. Like he's yeah. always, no matter what's happening, he's just like, I don't care. My stomach hurts. Yeah, because so he much. ate shoes. He ate up his shoes. Yeah. And Nirupam has this amazing passage where he describes exactly how they became the cake. Yes. He says, yeah. um, the souls became the cream and the spikes were the cherries on top. <laughs> so obviously it became wonderful. enough of a cake for him to want to eat the whole thing, but they, it then maintained enough of the essence of shoes to oh. be thoroughly indigestible. Uh, it's it's <laughs> like both lovely and upsetting. Yeah. It's, just, it's a great touch, yeah. but yeah, also makes me feel sick. Um, yeah, so that's... Uh, that's all the pretend, the pretend food, food for yeah. this book, but very enjoyable. <laughs> but definitely fun. Nothing stuff. I'd want to eat, yeah. but a whole lot of fun. And it's nice to have some real magical food after the. La- I feel like the yeah. last few books we've done have just been like Zell, you know, it's like bread Normal and food. soup, and mm-hmm. We Free Man was cheese. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was exciting to have something real silly in there. Yeah, yeah. Another um, just like little personal joy reading this book was that the word quadrangle is used but it's used correctly did you notice it no (laughs) i wasn't on the lookout they actually say it a lot because it mean it's i think used in british english to mean a, a courtyard especially um, like one within a school building like a quad yeah exactly i think quad is just short for quadrangle it's been here all along. Oh, my God. Yeah. Loyal listeners will know that quadrangle is the in a, incorrect word that I like to use uh, in place of quartet when describing a series of four to books. Describe a book of four. But I have been disproven. Um, quadrangle is out there. It's a real word. And it means a courtyard or a quad. More you know. <laughs> um, so don't forget. I don't know if we want to do badass lady meter because technically the protagonist is not a woman we Um, could call we could call nan the main lady though she is and she she gets a fair amount of page time Mm -hmm. um and she's the one who makes it possible to put the worlds back together Mm -hmm. really um i love how her alternate profession that crestomancy uh helps her come up with is to be a writer because she um, enjoys describing things yeah. and has this particular talent for it. She actually, Nana is responsible for one of the most striking passages in the book, which is from her journal, which is when she describes real children. Um, yes, yes. It was that so was good. Amazing. It was so good. I actually, I found some really, I found some really incredible pieces of academic writing um two dissertations that uh one is uh, about all of diana win jo- jones's works and one is um is called the the other in british uh school fiction something like that Dang. um really cool stuff i'll link them both on our uh website when we post this um but uh 
one of the, one of them, yeah, uh, identified this passage as um, kind of the thesis for what the the children in the book believe about their social standing and like their hierarchy. Um, and uh, I'm I'm just really quickly gonna read it. I might maybe I'll cut this out, but how many times have I said that today? <laughs> We're gonna leave everything in. All right. So Nan's journal entry reads. They are divided into girls and boys with an invisible line down the middle of the room, and people only cross that line when teachers make them. Girls are divided into real girls, Teresa Mullet, and imitations, Estelle Green, and me. Boys are divided into real boys, Simon Silverson, Brutes, Daniel Smith, and unreal boys, Nirupam Singh, and Charles Morgan, and Brian Wentworth. What makes you a real girl or boy is that no one laughs at you. If you're an imitation or unreal, the rules give you a right to exist, provided you do what the real ones or the brutes say. What makes you into me or Charles Morgan is that the rules allow all the girls to be better than me and all the boys better than Charles Morgan. They are allowed to cross the invisible line to prove this. Everyone is allowed to cross the invisible line to be nasty to Brian Wentworth. <laughs> <laughs> ah, Brian is tough. <laughs> I don't want to revel in people yeah treating him poorly but he's just such a nightmare that it's kind of hard to not be like okay (laughs) a jerk but he has one of the most beautiful pieces of magic in the book having all the birds fly into the music room that's true that's true so there is some but it's also very chaotic and brian um yeah but not to read a really long quote and then not discuss it at all moving on (laughs) it's such a succinct way to break down um and be objective about this hierarchy that she's totally enmeshed in and that determines her and everyday that's comfort. Realistic and true. It is. It feels real. I yeah. mean, we keep saying that, but it's so reminiscent of, of being that a kid. Social hierarchy. Um, and yeah, struggling at, at school socially. Um, and Nan, I mean, most of the time tries to just do her thing, but as soon as it as she's revealed as the likely witch in the class, um, it's pretty much nonstop hell for her. And a group of girls actually threatened to drown her yes! at one point and are pretty serious about it. Yeah. I mean, they're going to submerge her in a bathtub and they comment that if she's a witch, she won't drown. So, you know, it's the old, the old standby. Yeah. If they die, oh well. If they don't, they're a witch. Yeah. Um, but Nan does a really good job throughout the book of trying to stay true to herself. And then she gets really empowered by her ability to ride on a broomstick. Um, and she starts thinking about her true witchy inner self and embracing it. And that's really, really fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. She really goes through a transformation. Um, so I am rating Nan um, a broomstick, a mop and a hoe <laughs> all jiggling across a field to happily meet one another i'm rating her the descendant and equivalent of a great arch witch nice and i think that's about everything i actually had to say about the book yeah. um, madeline you got any closing thoughts uh i like this book and if by some crazy chance you've made it to the very end of this podcast without reading yeah, this it. one's oh i thought you had made it to the end at all because <laughs> this one has been funny grace is like, prove no, grace wrong our expectations yeah. <laughs> message us and tell us you made it to the end and yeah, that grace comment, is wrong comment on our instagram post for the with the cover of this book and just say 
You're, oh, you're oh. wrong, Grace. <laughs> Grace is going to go crazy with this one. I'm just going to say, say you're wrong, Grace. Yeah, just write, you're wrong, Grace. Um, please. And, look forward to it. Yeah, this is a really awesome book and you should read it. And I'm proud of you if you did. <laughs> I guess I'm happy for you. If you have made it this far and you haven't read this book and you have read Harry Potter, which I'm certain you have, definitely check this out. Yeah. It's kind of crazy how similar that you are. And I actually saw... This is amazing. Linked from the Wikipedia page for this book was a Wikipedia page that just says inspirations for Harry Potter. And it's basically ah. a long list of fantasy authors who have been confronted at one point or another in some way. Um, you know, saying like, don't you have beef with J.K. Rowling? Like, she totally ripped you off. And mm. uh, then their responses. And Diana Wynne-Jones basically just said like, yeah, I mean, there are similarities. Like, I'm sure that she read some of my books at some point and some of it stuck with her, but like, that's what a book is. Like, you right. put it out in the world and it, it informs people's it lives. part of yeah. the culture. There's also, bonus, uh, a little interview from Terry Pratchett, who has actually been interviewed by fools before, who have asked him if Harry Potter helped inspire Discworld. Um, helped inspire the unseen university that the wizards attend and are part of. And his what? response has been, you know what? Yeah, it actually was an inspiration, but I had to use my time machine. So it's a little awkward to talk about. <laughs> it's like, That's so silly. It's embarrassing. So very yeah. silly. The unseen university has been around for quite a bit longer than Harry Potter. Um, but yeah. So if you like Harry Potter, which you probably do, Check out Read Witch Week. Book. So I'm good. dancing it around. You can't. And see. from there, definitely check out more of Diane Wynne Jones's work. Um, the other, the other Crestomancy books are all really fun. The Lives of Christopher Chant, um, The Magicians of Caprona. That's another kind of standalone story where Crestomancy comes in and helps out. Um, yeah, yeah, they're they're also good. Uh, and then, I mean, yeah, I, I could name all of her books, but I won't. So, check it out. I think that's it. Um, I'm Grace. And I'm Madeline. Until next time. Goodbye. If you'd like to learn more about Dragon Babies, you can find us online at dragonbabiespodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at dragonbabiespod. That's the P-O-D, the first syllable of podcast. Songs used in this episode are Pippin the Hunchback and Thatched Villagers, both by Kevin McLeod and licensed under the Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. You can find his music at incompetech.com. Thanks for listening.